Good morning. Our text uh, this morning is Matthew 10, 5 to 42. These 12 Jesus sent out, instructing them, Go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel and proclaim as you go, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. You received without paying, give without pay. Acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts, no bag for your journey, or two tunics or sandals or a staff, for the laborer deserves his food. In whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it and stay there until you depart. As you enter the house, greet it. And if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Truly, I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues. And you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake, to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. Brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child. And children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly, I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? So have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed, or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also deny before my Father who is in heaven. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Whoever receives you receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. The one who receives a prophet because he is a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. And the one who receives a righteous person because he is a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, truly, I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. This is the word of the Lord. Go ahead and be seated and I'll pray for us. Honestly, I have, 
I, I don't know where to start in this prayer. This is a this is a huge text, and there's so much truth in it. Um, I pray that as we sit and we we hear, I pray that the Spirit's working would be upon our our hearts and our lives. I pray that we would be able to receive what you would have for us this morning with humility. I pray that we would strip away all the distractions, all the thoughts within our minds um, that would preclude us from hearing this morning. Give, give Mike the words to speak. Um, give him the clarity to be able to distill down this text in that, um, I don't know, he would just, you would build your kingdom this morning in your name. Amen. Amen. Thanks, brother. How are we, family? Good. We waking up. Happy New Year. Encouraging text this morning, yeah? Good. All right, guys. We're going to start off here a little bit different this morning. So with uh, the New Year upon us, one of the things that we wanted to begin again was uh, just a reintroduction of the Apostles' Creed and the New City Catechism. And so we tried this back in 2020, I think, and COVID killed it. Um, So we are bringing it back again in 2022. And so, Lord willing, COVID will be killed. Um, (laughs) Amen. So... um, over the, over the coming weeks and months, the plan is with the creed and the catechisms uh, to just kind of continually put out information, uh, in particular on CCB in our website, regarding why we do or work through the, the creeds and the catechisms. Uh, but one of the, the things about the creed and the catechisms is they just they help establish our faith, uh, and they, they, they give us opportunity to just establish firmly in our hearts and minds what it is that we believe. And uh, so they, they, they kind of form us around correct doctrine. And doctrine is important because doctrine shapes our view of God. And so as we memorize uh, the Apostles' Creed, as we memorize uh, this catechism, uh, what we're doing is, is we're, we're like rooting doctrines deep into our souls uh, that we have opportunity to, to fall back on uh, whenever we need to fall back on them. So um, one of the things with the creed that I might encourage you to do is uh, kind of what I've done with my own here is I just, I printed it out and taped it in the back of my Bible. So it's just kind of always with me because um, I'd like to carry my Bible around everywhere. So, <laughs> um, so it's always there. It's just easy to, to look at in the morning when I'm reading or whatever. Um, so I just encourage you to, to do that. I can post on CCB the, the version of the creed that we use. And then with the catechism, which we'll go through as well, that is an app. So it's just the New City Catechism. You can download it, App Store, uh, super easy to go through. And uh, the New City Catechism is really wonderful because it, uh, it's 52 questions, so it's one for every week of the year. It also has uh, qu- uh, answers for adults and kids, so it's really easy to utilize working with our kids because uh, it just kind of makes the answers a little bit shorter. And so it's, it's really helpful. And even, you know, we've, we've worked through the New City Catechism in various ways through a number of years, uh, and it sticks. Our kids remember things that we went through like four years ago when it comes to the catechism. So it's, it's really helpful in just kind of establishing sound doctrine uh, in our lives. So with that, uh, the way that we're going to do this is we're going to read it together. Uh, so I'm going to just kick us off, and we're just going to read through it. So here we go. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Great. So uh, we're just going to work through that throughout the year. Um, Potentially once or twice a month we'll um, uh, do this in our gatherings. Uh, One thing to always clarify, because this question always comes up, why do we say Catholic? Uh, we're not a Roman Catholic church. Uh, the word Catholic simply means universal. And so that's a, a word that has been a part of this creed since its inception. Because at one point in time, uh, the church was just Catholic. So that's that. 
With that, then, this is how we're going to work the, uh, the catechism. It's a lot this morning, but... So I'm going to read the question, and then we will respond together uh, as a church. So here, here is our, our question, and then we'll respond together. Uh, what is our only hope in life and death? That we are not our own, but belong, body and soul, both in life and death, to God and to our Savior, Jesus Christ. So uh, it's cool on the app, you have the ability to, uh, there's commentary on it, there's some songs that go along with it, there's just, uh, there's a, some verses that go along with it, there's a lot of like depth that you can dive into with the app. So I'd highly encourage you uh, to download that. You can also buy a book uh, version of, of the New City Catechism if you don't like using things on your phones. So uh, it's just a super helpful tool and just will help to establish us in sound doctrine. <sighs> with that, we have like... 42 verses to work through this morning. So, uh, has anyone ever seen a miracle? <laughs> Not about to see one this morning. So, <laughs> we'll see how this goes. I hope you all got your coffee, uh, bathroom break, all that stuff. Let's do this. Um, by way of quick recap first, though. Uh, a couple weeks ago, uh, Will preached through 9, 35 through 10, 4. And I just wanted to kind of re-highlight what he worked through there. So first, uh, talked about just the reality that Jesus is compassionate, right? Uh, just this, this idea that Jesus, I think the, the phrase that was used was feels the feels, right? Feeling the feelings. Yeah, does that, that work? That, it's this intense Greek word that uh, was really, really just describes the, the depth at which Jesus was able to enter into the human situation and feel it. And so Jesus looked upon the crowds, he, he had compassion on them, he saw that they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd, uh, went and looked at Ezekiel and, and, and God's rebuke of uh, the, the, the shepherds of, of, of Israel, essentially, and how they were basically um, just doing what they were doing for selfish gain. And so Jesus has compassion on these people. He feels deeply for their plight uh, because they're without a shepherd, and, and then what we know is that Jesus is the good shepherd, right? So Jesus is the good shepherd uh, that his people are looking for. Jesus is the good shepherd that we are looking for. The second thing that uh, was pointed out is that Jesus isn't frantic. And I just, I love this. I think this is my favorite point of, and section of, of Will's entire sermon is that uh, Jesus assesses, right? And, and he says, uh, he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them. They're harassed, helpless. And then he says to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. And his response to this isn't, get your butts in gear, go, go, go. His, his response is, therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. And so Jesus is, is well aware of the magnitude of, of the work. Like Jesus knows what it's going to take, but Jesus also knows that what? That he has it under control. And so our, our response to our king, obeying our king, is to pray earnestly for laborers to be sent out into the harvest. That's how Jesus tells us to deal with this, to not be frantic, but to pray. And then the third thing that we saw is that Jesus calls 12 specific disciples and sends them out on a very specific mission. This is actually where we're going to start this morning, but what I want to clarify in regards to the sending here of these 12 on this particular mission is that it is just that. It is a very specific mission for these 12 specific people. Matthew 10 is not a blueprint for missions or evangelism. If anything, it's a manifesto for faithfulness to King Jesus. And that's, that's what we're going to be working out this morning. Right, as, as I hope you heard as, as Luke was reading through it this morning, what Jesus is doing is he's, he's giving his disciples a realistic picture of what it looks like to be his disciple. And it's pretty grim, right? Like you read Matthew 10 and it's like, well, this doesn't seem overly exciting. Uh, you know, like no one's reading Matthew 10 and is like, hey, come and follow Jesus. Right? It doesn't work out that way. It's It's intense. And so there's a lot that we could focus on in this massive narrative, right? Uh, what does it, but what does it look like to remain faithful to Jesus is the main question that this text is getting at, okay? So with that, our main point is this. Disciples 
remain faithful to Jesus because Jesus has been and will always be faithful to them. I think this is, this is what Matthew 10 ultimately captures for us, is that disciples will remain faithful to Jesus because Jesus has been and will always be faithful to them. So the way that we're going to work this out here this morning, you can go to the, the five points. <laughs> yeah, you heard that, five points. Uh, is this, because Jesus is faithful, then we're going to work out these, these realities from the text, Okay. So uh, let's start here, just number one. Because Jesus is faithful, number one, we celebrate our diversity. And, and that is specifically as disciples of Jesus. So look with me again there at verses one through four. We didn't read that this morning, but that's where I wanna take us back to. And he called to him his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. The names of the 12 apostles are these. First, Simon, who's called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon, the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Okay. So I just want to start out again by looking briefly at the disciples that Jesus calls and sends to himself. And here is the reality. If Jesus were anxious to get a job done correctly, he wouldn't have picked this group. This is not the group that would have got the job done correctly. And at least in our understanding of what correctness and success might look like. And, and, and really, this is, this is a big part of what we're going to be trying to, to work out here this morning is that um, not only is this not a blueprint for mission or evangelism, it's also not a picture of what we deem successful, and so it begins just in this reality that Jesus calls to himself this incredibly ragtag group of men. I don't know if any of you noticed this morning in the, the first song that we sang, there is a, a lyric difference, right? Crazies and freaks. How do, how do we normally do that one again? Freedom and peace. Freedom and peace, which doesn't go with, what was the line before it? What was? Beautiful a beautiful circus of freedom and peace, Right? Doesn't, doesn't quite connect. The original lyric is crazies and freaks. And I, I don't know, how does that make you feel? Right, like how many of you, you got to that line, you're like, wait a minute, this isn't it. <laughs> That's not what we have sung before. But it, I, it, it clearly articulates the reality of the people that Jesus calls to himself. And I, and I think we need to learn how to embrace that, like that we are part of this eclectic group of crazies and freaks. And it's okay, right? Like, too often, man, we just take ourselves way too seriously. I think sometimes we just need to, like, chill out a little bit and laugh a little bit and be aware, like, oh, yeah, like, if I really were to just assess me, I'm a little crazy. I'm a little freakish. Most of the time, I think I'm normal, but I'm not. I'm trying to see if I can get you guys going this morning. <laughs> so what we have here, though, is, is, is specifically it's this. We have a group of 12 free, as in not slave, Jewish men. And, and what this is, is this is solely for the purpose of the effectiveness of the mission to Israel. So let's be clear that Jesus hasn't just established um, the necessity, I'm trying to figure out how to articulate this, for male-only leadership. The reason that he has called just 12 men to this particular mission is because if anyone else was involved in it, they wouldn't have had a chance. So the, the mission is very specific at this point. In Matthew chapter 10, it's very specific to a very specific group of people. Right? Notice that Jesus is clear. He sends them out and he says, go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans. We don't have that mission anymore. That's not how we function. That's not what making disciples of all nations looks like. This is very specific. He says, go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. 
And so Jesus establishes this group of 12 guys for this particular purpose. The second thing to notice is this, is that it is a group of middle-class workers. And in particular, uh, what, we, what we know is that less than 10% of Jewish Palestinian population were engaged in the jobs of these men. Uh, and, and specifically, fishermen and tax collectors. And then what's also unique about this is that you have in the same group, you have a tax collector and a revolutionary, a, a zealot. And if ever there were enemies on the political spectrum, this was it. Um, yeah, this just wouldn't have gone well if it weren't for Jesus. Like if you could just, if you could figure your farthest right and your farthest left in the same room, that's what you have. And yet Jesus calls them together. What's also important for us to note about this is that this group excludes religious professionals. There are no Pharisees. There are no Sadducees. There are no scribes. There are no MDivs or PhDs in ministry in this group. It is it is this diverse, on the outward appearance, unsuccessful, unexciting group of people. Craig Keener, in, in his commentary, he puts it like this, and I wasn't able to get the quotes up this morning because the font was being funky and it just was a disaster, so you're just going to have to hear the quotes, okay? He says this, though. He says, quote, any of us who struggle with whether we are adequate to carry out God's purposes in the world should recall that the first ambassadors Jesus called were wholly inadequate. God uses especially those who will recognize their own inadequacy. For those who suppose their own ability adequate for God's call usually end up depending on it instead of on him. Right? So, if you're in here this morning and you ha you're like, man, I, I'm too weak or I'm too whatever it is for God's purposes, you're just the person that the Lord calls to himself. Right? We get in trouble when we think, yeah, well, of course he called me. I'm like, duh. <laughs> Don't you know how skilled I am? See, Jesus' idea of successful mission looks a whole lot different than ours. And it's first illustrated here by the team that he chooses. And so we celebrate our diversity. And I really hope that we can continue to learn how to embrace this reality as a church. That we need to celebrate our differences. That we need to celebrate that we're not all the same people. That we are uniquely gifted in different ways. We have different passions, different callings, different desires. And that doesn't make any one better than the other we're all called into the body of Christ. And our, our diversity in the body of Christ is to be celebrated. So let's press into that this year. Okay, number two. Because Jesus is faithful, we possess peace. We possess peace. Look at verse five through 15. Let's read it. These 12 Jesus sent out, instructing them, go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And proclaim as you go, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. You receive without paying, give without pay. Acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts, no bag for your journey or two tunics or sandals or a staff, for the laborer deserves his food. And whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it and stay there until you depart. As you enter the house, greet it. And if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet from uh, when you leave that house or town. Truly I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. So having called his disciples, Jesus now sends them. He, uh, just, he sends them out and gives them these specifics in this mission. And so again, the, the, the Matthew 10 type of mission no longer exists for us, but 
there are absolutely principles uh, for us to learn from it. And I think the key takeaway here is, is this reality that we possess peace, but it's, it's an awareness that we possess peace because Jesus is with us. And so as followers of Jesus, this is what we're, we're, we're supposed to embrace, is this God with us understanding and awareness and that, that he's going to provide for us. That's why Jesus directs them to, to not take any of these particular items, but rather to trust that they're going to be provided for. And it actually should recall uh, for our minds Matthew chapter 6 uh, in uh, the Sermon on the Mount, right? When Jesus tells us to not be anxious about what you're going to eat or what you're going to wear, Jesus is working out the sermon still here in Matthew chapter 10. But one of the just principles that I think we need to, to see in this is this, is that though Matthew 10 is not specific to us today in regards to mission, what we need to understand is that all disciples of Jesus are to be living sent for Jesus all the time. Okay. Say it again. All disciples of Jesus are to be living sent for Jesus all the time. Thank you, Luke. Yes, I knew there could be one somewhere in there. And that's, that's re- regardless of where you are in your life season, in your location, whatever, Jesus has placed us here to live as sent disciples in Twin Falls. Because believe it or not, there's people in this city who don't know Jesus. Did you know that? True thing, true story. And so we get to, to live out this reality regardless. Like this, is, this is the case for all disciples of Jesus as we are a sent People, we are both gathered and scattered. I think this is important for us to understand because one of the tendencies that we have, um, it's easy for us to kind of create hierarchies in the church. Does that make sense? In, in the sense that we, we tend to view certain positions or certain gifted people as higher up than others. And, and, and we kind of create these little ladders in the ecclesiastical structure. But those ladders don't actually exist. Right? There isn't actually any sort of hierarchical structure in the church. Yes, there are leaders. Yes, there are elders and deacons and so on and so forth. But as followers of Jesus, we're all called to be disciples of Jesus. And, and we're all to live sent no matter where we are. That's just how it works. Uh, uh, I've been reading a book, believe it or not, by a guy named Jordan Rayner, and the book is called Redeeming Your Time. And at the beginning of the book, he recounts the story of William Wilberforce. Uh, And and Wilberforce is is known for basically putting the slave trade to, basically to an end uh, in, in England in the 1800s, I believe it is. And... What William, what William Wilberforce experienced is what he called, in his own experience, the great change. And so it was this experience for him of, of, of transformation from being uh, just a politician, he was a politician, to then becoming a follower of Jesus. And his heart was cap- just absolutely captured by Jesus. And he thought that in order to be a true, dedicated follower of Jesus, that he would have to give up politics, and that he would have to give up everything else uh, in his world around him. And so he talked with, um, oh, who's the guy, Newton, who wrote, what's his first name? What? John, Newton, yes, who wrote Amazing Grace, that one. He, he was friends with him, uh, talked with him and said, what should I do? Because he thought that he would need to leave what he was doing so that he could, quote, live now for God. And for some reason, that's, that's how we like to categorize things. Like, oh, I, in order for me to live for God, I have to stop doing this and go do something else. But here's, here's how uh, Rayner puts it, and Rayner is quoting another biographer, so it's a little confusing, but I'm just going to share the quote. He says, quote, Newton didn't tell him what he had expected. 
that to follow God, he would have to leave politics. On the contrary, Newton encouraged Wilberforce to stay where he was, saying that God would use him there. Most others in Newton's place would likely have insisted that Wilberforce pull away from the very place where his salt and light were most needed. How good that Newton did not. So Newton's encouragement to him was obviously stay put. And so it might be that you're a person who is sent out onto the quote-unquote mission field. But honestly, that language is super unhelpful. Because the mission is all around us. Like it's, It's here, right before us, right now. And in our gathering, we're gathering here together to be equipped in that reality. You're being equipped here this morning in the good news of Jesus so that you can go out into your everyday lives and make much of Jesus. Like it goes beyond, being a follower of Jesus goes beyond this moment, this gathering. And so the question that we need to ask is, what presence do we bring wherever we are? So as a farmer, as a mechanic, as a teacher, as a single person, as a married person, as a barista, as a manager, as a retired person, what presence are you bringing? And what we see in our text is that we are, as followers of Jesus, to have a presence of peace. Now, I love this. Look again at verse 12. He's talking about going into these houses, into these towns. As you enter the house, greet it, and listen, if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. So Jesus is, is, is communicating that we are, because of, because of Jesus, we possess a certain kind of peace that doesn't exist in the world. And I think that's, that's important. Like, we aren't looking for peaceful people. We are the peaceful people. We are supposed to be recognized as, as having a certain unique kind of unfrantic nature about us because we know who our king is. Why, why, why should we go about living worried and anxious about tomorrow? We don't know what it's going to bring. Right? We're to, to live Calmly, presently, just like we worked through last Sunday, in the days that we're given, in the moments that we're given. And that peace is intended to be recognized. Let your peace come upon this house. If if the if the house isn't worthy to receive you, let your peace return to you. Now the greater peace that we possess is ultimately then through the message that we proclaim. Jesus says, clear, go, proclaim the gospel of the kingdom of heaven. And this is the message of peace. And, and this, would have been, this would have been recognized as a message being proclaimed in opposition to Rome. Because the message of Rome was that we are a kingdom of peace. You, you ever heard of like the, the Pax Romana? It was this whole idea that Rome was going to be, bring peace to the world. And then Jesus enters into the world and he says, nope, new kingdom, new message. This is the message of peace. And so we, we proclaim a message of offense to Rome or to Babylon or to America or whatever nation it might be. The, the gospel of the kingdom is actually a message that's opposed to whatever way of peace the world is saying that we can have. It's, it's this upside-down reality. And so amidst Babylon, amidst Rome, there is a new king and a new kingdom who we now declare allegiance to. And so we, we proclaim ultimately now that, that Jesus is king, that he is the king who lived perfectly in our place, that he died the death that we deserve to die, that he was placed in a grave just as we... Uh, recited in the creed, right? And that he rose again and that he ascended to his throne. He is now ruling and reigning as Lord and King. 
So our proclamation as followers of Jesus is not just that Jesus died on the cross for my sins, it's that Jesus is king. That my allegiance, my entire life is for him. And there's no other ruler, no other king. There's no political party that's going to save us. It's Jesus. That's what Matthew 10 is getting at. And guess what? That's really offensive. As a matter of fact, that is what got Jesus crucified. Jesus was crucified because he was proclaimed to be a king in place of Caesar, guys. And so there is a new king, a new kingdom that we declare allegiance to, and the peace that we possess as followers of Jesus is not a peace that the world gives to us, but only that Jesus gives to us. And because of this, then, Number three, we are able to endure. We endure. So look at verse 16. Behold, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues, and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake, to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. Brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next, for truly I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes." A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? So again, let's just state the reality. This is the most unattractive invitation to following someone that you could possibly imagine. Like, like this is Jesus' come follow me, go as my ambassadors, and now here's the reality of your life. This is what we're invited into. So it must be rooted in something good, and that takes us back to this reality of the kingdom and the peace that we possess. We know that Jesus is ruling, reigning, Lord and King. At the end of the day, we can't lose. And so we, we possess that reality, therefore we endure. Now, Jesus' words here in this section are important, and they're less about methods and more about wisdom. More about wisdom. Jesus wants his disciples to know how to interact with the world around him that he's sending them into. And he says that he sends them out as sheep among wolves. And if you're thinking to yourself, that doesn't sound fair, you're right. Like, uh, it's just not fair, (laughs) Like a sheep doesn't stand a chance with a pack of wolves. I have three sheep. They don't stand a chance against anything. (laughs) Um, But Jesus prepares them. So here's how he does it. He does it in a threefold way. First, he tells them to be wise and innocent. Second, he tells them to be ready to endure. And third, he tells them to not be surprised. So first, be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Dallas Willard puts it like this. He says, quote, what matters in our approach to people is not just what we do, but how we do it and when. And this is what Jesus is getting at when he says to be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. He's communicating that our approach to the world around us matters. It matters. Um, and, and he uses this illustration, right, of, of serpents and doves. Snakes, the idea with snakes is this. Snakes don't chase anything. I don't, I don't know if you've ever had the opportunity to watch a snake. It waits for its prey. Right? And so what, what you see in a snake is this, is they're patient, but when they act, it's quick and decisive. So Jesus is teaching, first and foremost, be patient, like kind of like assess your surroundings. And then when you choose to act, do so quickly and decisively. 
And then also doves. Just, it's, just, it's just such a weird contrast, snakes, doves. Doves are completely innocent and gentle. Right? I think we joked about it a while back. Who's ever been angry at a dove? Right? Or, or annoyed at a dove, for that matter. Like, when you hear a dove in the morning, you're like doing its little cuckoo thing. Like, whoever was like, oh, gosh, that's really obnoxious. And maybe you are, but I don't know. Luke's like, I want to shoot it. <laughs> For the most part, right, it's the most innocent creature, gentle creature that there is. And the idea of, of it is this, is an inability to be misled or guileless. We are, as followers of Jesus, to be a people who are just pointed and to the truth and not misleading with our message, not misleading with the gospel, not trying to um, manipulate people into the kingdom. This isn't a sales pitch. I mean, read Matthew 10, it's a lousy sales pitch. And yet it's what being a follower of Jesus looks like. The whole point that Jesus is getting at is this, is that we aren't out to make a point or a stand or a takeover. Jesus' kingdom doesn't come through force. Uh, the, the, the language of, of sword that we'll get to a little bit later is not, it's not language of war. It's, it's language of division. Jesus is saying that the reality of his kingdom, the reality of, of being a follower of Jesus is division will come between us and those who don't follow Jesus. But his, his kingdom way is a way of peace. And that's what it means to be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. We know what we believe as followers of Jesus. Jesus doesn't need us to be frantic and rescue him from anything. Like, do you know that Jesus did not send us out to rescue him? He, he is a God, he has himself taken care of. We are to faithfully endure. We are to faithfully walk in wisdom toward outsiders. And so just, we need to just think, like are the things that we are saying, whether it be to our coworkers, our family, our friends, on social media, are we wise? Are we winsome? Are we being wise as serpents, innocent as doves in the way that we communicate? Or are we being bombastic and intentionally, stupidly aggressive in a way that winds up actually giving a bad name to Jesus in the church? our words and our approach and our timing matters. Then he goes on here and just simply says to be ready to endure. Verse 21 and 22 there. Uh, I wanna read verse 22 again. He says that you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. The idea of the word here, endure, is what I wanna kind of hone in on. It's just the idea of holding fast or standing firm. And it's interesting, I think this teaching, if any teaching, is all but lost on the church today. The, the, the disciples of Jesus are, are called to endure. And this is, this is different than what we've been most frequently taught because we have been taught to come to Jesus because he'll give us sobriety or fix our marriages or our singleness or our kids or our careers, right? Right? Like, come to Jesus, and he's just gonna, he's gonna make all these things better for you. And, and we might be able to ride some sort of high for a little bit, but eventually you're going to come down. Right, like, eventually the honeymoon wears off. And so Jesus' admonition to his disciples is one of endurance. His teaching is, no, it's actually not going to go well for you. It's not going to be cushy. It's not going to be cozy. It's not going to be easy. You will be hated by all for my name's sake. You will be rejected because you claim allegiance to, to Jesus. And this is what he's teaching us to endure through. 
See, the life of a disciple of Jesus will be filled with much more hardship than it will be ease. And the question, I think, is will we endure with Jesus simply because he's worth it? Like, all we have to offer is Jesus. And, And because Jesus's way is the way of wisdom, it might wind up being helpful for our marriages. It might wind up being helpful for our singleness and our kids and our careers and so on and so forth. But Jesus isn't a, a Band-Aid or a patch or a guaranteed fix. Right? Jesus is Lord and King. Right? And, and so we're, we follow him simply because of that reality. Because he's enthroned. That's enough. He's conquered Satan, sin, death, and hell. That is enough. Um, the third thing that he encourages his disciples in with endurance is just to not be surprised. Uh, verse 24, a disciple is not above his teacher nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? Isn't it interesting? The religious people call Jesus demonic. Religious people call Jesus' people demonic. Religious people tend to be the ones who get most upset. And Jesus' encouragement is don't be surprised. This is what Jesus faced, and if we are disciples of Jesus, then this is what we should expect to be treated like Jesus. And it is this that we're called to endure through, to, to persevere uh, you know, the, the book of Revelation is an interesting one, and if we can cut through all of the wackiness around it, um, the, the core message of Revelation is to persevere and to worship Jesus because he's on the throne. Right? In, in Revelation, you have, you have this picture of six churches who are facing intense persecution, Wave upon wave upon wave of persecution. And Jesus' encouragement to those churches, because if you go back and read Revelation 2 and 3, you'll notice that the words are in red if you have that kind of Bible. They're Jesus' encouragement to churches to endure, to persevere, to stand firm in the midst of a world that hates us. Right? Uh, number four, we prepare for loss. This is, this is so good. Come, be a follower of Jesus and prepare yourself for loss. How are we doing? Good? All right. Look at verse 26. So have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will uh, not be known. What I tell you in the dark, I'll just stop there. That's just Jesus' way of saying, like, at the end of all things, it's going to be revealed. Like, God's going to make things known that need to be known, okay? Uh, what I tell you in the dark, say in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows." So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. Um, Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loses father or mother or loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Man, those are intense words. Because at the... At the core of it, what Jesus is saying is, don't be afraid of humans. They're going to kill you, but don't be afraid of them. Uh, 
you're going to lose your family. Like, you're going to lose everything that is near and dear to you because you're holding fast to the teachings of Jesus. And so he's preparing his disciples for loss. I think, I think one of the most astonishing marks of Jesus' personal ministry and the ministry that he gave to his disciples is then just how unsuccessful it looks. I think that's one of the most astonishing things to me about this text is that in every way, shape, and form, it looks like a loss. It looks like losing. It sounds like losing. It sounds unsuccessful. Jesus isn't like, man, you guys go out, be faithful to proclaim the gospel and love people really well, and everyone's just going to come, crowds are going to come, and they're going to follow you, and they're going to love you. He's like, no, they're just going to kill you. Everyone is just going to hate you. It's, it's completely unsuccessful. And so again, apart from knowing the good news of the kingdom and the fact that Jesus rules and reigns now, there's just no reason to follow this guy. His entire ministry is one of loss, and he's preparing us to experience the same. Now, I think it's hard for us to understand these words of Jesus, because we don't face this too much yet. I think there's degrees, right? And I think we need to be prepared more and more for greater degrees of this sort of loss. And certainly, maybe some in here already have faced that reality, loss of family, in some way, shape, or form, because of your obedience to Jesus. And I think that ought to be more and more expected in the coming years. Like, I don't think uh, hostility is going away. Um, and so Jesus is preparing us then now in, in preparation for loss. And he does so in, in two ways. Number one, I think there's just this implicit message of redefining success. As followers of Jesus, in America today, we need to learn how to redefine success. The second one is redefine family. We'll get to that in just a bit. But first, redefining success. In his book, Emotionally Healthy Discipleship, uh, Peter Scazzaro says, one of the marks of healthy discipleship today is to follow the crucified, not the Americanized Jesus. Again, a mark of healthy discipleship is to follow the crucified, not the Americanized Jesus. And they are different. They're different. Four characteristics of the crucified disciple. Uh, he, he works it out like this. Number one, it's uh, to reject popularity. So much of the church is aimed at being popular, and the popular people get on stage, and we kind of just clamor after popularity. But to be a crucified disciple is to reject popularity. The second characteristic is to reject greatism. Uh, Jesus, I think this is amazing. Think of it like this. Jesus' beginnings were not great. He was born in Nazareth uh, in a cave because his family rejected him. Uh, Jesus' disciples weren't great. We've already assessed that. And what's fun is we're gonna continue to work through the gospel and see how his disciples aren't great. And because at the end of his life, guess where his disciples are? Not with him. Like, the people he spent day and night with for three years left him. That's a horrible team. His ministry wasn't great. Like, like Jesus' ministry was kind of like a, it, on the surface, it just kind of appears like a one-hit wonder. Like, there's crowds for a moment, but then they're gone. And by the end of his life, he's left by himself with a few women at his feet. That's scandalous. And his impact wasn't great. The bulk of Jesus' ministry, you guys, was in small towns, not big cities. The third characteristic of this sort of discipleship is to reject successism. Reject successism, right? uh, which we'll talk about a bit in just a, a bit more in just a, a moment. 
And the, the fourth is that we tend to avoid suffering and failure versus embrace suffering and failure. As disciples of Jesus, we need to learn how to embrace suffering and failure. Here's, here's what Scazzaro says. He says, quote, we live in a larger culture that believes that bigger is always better. Bigger profits, bigger influence, bigger impact. And the church more or less believes the same thing. We measure success by the numbers and bigger is always the goal. If our numbers are increasing, we feel great and consider our efforts a success. If they are not, we feel despondent and consider our efforts a failure, which is why it is essential that we define success rightly. According to Jesus, success is becoming the person God calls you to become and doing what God calls you to do in his way and according to his timetable. So it's a challenge because what we, what we want to do is we, we think that success is just this always up and to the right idea, right? Up and to the right. If we're up and to the right, we're doing well. But the kingdom often looks different. Um, or or, or we, we try to, we live in these ideas of like open doors or if, um, if something's easy, it must be the right thing. Or if, or if what I'm doing is being blessed, as in up and to the right, then God is obviously with me. And if it's, you know, down and to the left, then obviously something's wrong. What if God wants us down and to the left a bit more? Like, how do we handle that? What if down and to the left is actually really successful in God's eyes? And I'm not saying don't pursue success. Like, I'm not saying, you know, start shooting down into the left for your family or your work or anything. Like, that's what I'm saying. I'm just saying we have to embrace as disciples of Jesus a, a reality in the church, you know, like how often, I mean, this is maybe just speaking for myself, you know, we come on Sunday mornings and it's like, gosh, where's all the people? Or even some of us can look around here this morning and be like, seems a little empty. Is everything okay? You know, or, or our, our budget looks a little upside down. We're like, is everything okay? Like, yeah, it's actually really great. You see what I mean? Success isn't always just or things going good it's not always equated to success in the kingdom. So how do we do this? How do we, how do we reframe our understanding of success? Well, Scazzaro, he gives three ideas. He says, number one, relax in Jesus. Like we talked about last week, just learning how to be with Jesus. Learning and embracing this reality that Jesus is king. Like really actually ruling and reigning. Second, he teaches to detach for Jesus, and I, I, I thought I would just bring up his book to kind of clarify what that means, because some of us here detach and we're like, oh, that sounds bad. Here's, here's what he means by detaching for Jesus. He says, we are open to the unfolding of events and circumstances in our life, accepting everything, not attaching to any earthly experience or goal, but trusting that God is orchestrating all things for our good, his glory, and the good of the world. Uh, second, we set goals and direction for our lives in ministry, yet we release attachment to any particular outcome. So in other words, it's setting a goal and a trajectory, but not like, oh, I have to have that at all costs. Because if you have to have that goal or trajectory at all costs, guess who God is? The goal, the trajectory, the thing. Instead, he says, we engage in active service to Jesus with a passionate yet detached activism, recognizing that we cannot manipulate or predict what he wants to do. And third, we are prayerful not to get what we want, but to surrender our will to God's will, recognizing that unhealthy attachments are a reflection of our core spiritual problem, self-will. So there's in detaching for Jesus, and it redefines our success because it means that we're not attached to the things that we desire most. We actually trust God to be the one who establishes our steps in life. It's a really good book, by the way. I highly recommend it. Okay? 
Third, listen to Jesus. As we, as we rest in Jesus, as we detach for Jesus, we learn how to listen to Jesus and thus obey Jesus. Okay? The final thing that Jesus prepares us for here is to, in preparing for losses, is, comes with the redefinition of family. Redefinition of family. Okay? Uh, Jesus warns his disciples here that loss will be great and it will include family. Now, I want to be clear here that this text isn't saying that we go and forsake our families. It, it's, uh, it's interesting, one of the, uh, let's, let's see, biographies are interesting, and often biographies uh, of Christian heroes uh, will be written in such a way that highlights all of the great things that they did for God, but often neglects the fact that many families have been tortured by men doing great things for God. Uh, just, just a few examples uh, could be, uh, uh, there's one, uh, one interesting one, A.W. Tozer. M- most of us are familiar with A.W. Tozer. It was interesting, he was considered to be a great man of God, prayer, warrior, great preacher, a per- uh, 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 an, by outward appearances, an absolutely successful ministry, but his family was completely neglected. Uh, his, his wife, after he died, and this is just a paraphrase, after he died, she, she remarried, and someone asked about their marriage and her new marriage, and she said something to the effect of, you know, Tozer knew God. That was undeniable. She said, but my, my new husband, he knows me. And, and we might want to, like, Say, well, it's more honorable to know God more than your wife. Like, he says, pick up, pick up your cross, right? And I would say, well, not necessarily. Right? We're not called to neglect our families. Uh, Paul, Paul articulates this more in 1 Corinthians 7, I believe it is. I was, my fir- one of my very first full-time ministry experiences was uh, the philosophy was take care of the church and God will take care of your family. That's wrong. Like that's neglect. That's disobedience. Right? Um, what Jesus is teaching is for us to be prepared to be forsaken by our families. There's a difference. So he's not calling us to forsake them. He's preparing us to be forsaken by them. Again, he's saying that our, the, the allegiance of his disciples to himself is going to equate to their families wanting to kill them, which is just crazy. But this is, this is what the cruciform life looks like. This is when Jesus says, whoever does not take his cross and follow me... What he's, what he's referring to is the context right above that, right? Don't, don't pull verse 38 and 39 out of this context. He's saying specifically in light of the family structure, right? And so here's, here's what he's getting at. To take up your cross, it doesn't simply mean we intentionally do difficult things for Jesus. Like, oh, I just got to do all of the hardest things for Jesus. That could be part of it, absolutely, but not necessarily, Moreover, it doesn't mean that we intentionally make ourselves miserable. <laughs> Misery is not equal to more godliness, right? Taking up our cross means laying down our lives. It's a symbol of death to self. So in this case, in the context of what Jesus is teaching, it's the loss of family. Because to lose one's family the way that Jesus describes it is to lose everything. Because it's to lose, in, in this culture, it's to lose all of your honor, all of your status, and all of your inheritance. It's completely wrapped up in your family name. And, and when you go and follow a new king, a new lord, you're forsaking this one, and that one is forsaking you. And then you lose everything because of it. That's what Jesus is calling his disciples to when he says to pick up their crosses. So in other, 
words, what he does here is he, he redefines family for us. And we'll see this more, I think, in Matthew chapter 12. And in essence, what we see is that biblically, family isn't everything. Because in Christ, we're given a new family. We're given a new status. We're given a new inheritance in Christ. And the final thing that Jesus teaches us here is to be hospitable. Really got to wrap this up. Whoever receives you receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. The one who receives a prophet because he is a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. The one who receives a righteous person because he is a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. There's an interesting conclusion to this teaching, but first and foremost, we see Jesus' understanding of receiving him as receiving his people. It's interesting, Jesus, Jesus just says, if, if outsiders receive you as followers of Jesus, it's as if they're receiving me. Like, that's, that's the entrance into the kingdom. Right? And then the second thing that he does is he just says that we're to be motivated by rewards to simple, obedient, humble tasks, such as giving little cups of cold water to people who need it. That's discipleship. Like, is that not beautiful? Kingdom work is taking a cup of cold water and giving it to someone who needs it. It is this display of hospitality. And so here's what we'll conclude. Following Jesus rarely looks pretty. But Jesus doesn't need us to make it pretty. He hasn't asked us to make it pretty. Our witness isn't in how we or our work looks. It's in humble obedience to our humble king in the face of every sort of danger and trial. It's our presence of peace because Jesus is with us. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are with us. We thank you that you are Lord and King and nothing changes that reality. And I pray that you would help us to be a people who live in light of that and who endure in light of that in the world that you have placed us to live in. May we make much of you in all that we do and say. It's in your good name that we pray, amen.